Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, The Invisible War Today, with a message entitled Understanding Angels, Part 2, and we'll be looking at many scriptures throughout the Word. So let's do that as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I read an interesting report that last year, global expenditure on military rose to $1.8 trillion, estimated in U.S. currency. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no idea how to understand that. But I do know what the world spends on weapons of war has risen every year for the last 30 years. So does that mean that we're preparing for ever-increasing global conflict? Well, I guess I don't know. And I'm aware that some argue that the more you spend, the less likely you are to go to war. And perhaps, but I personally doubt it. It's hard not to use all those shiny new toys. Well, this is a part of a two-week series on spiritual warfare. And Revelation 12, verse 7 says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. War arose in heaven. And of course, as Revelation points out so well, war in the heavenly realms has a great effect here. As a part of this series, I've dedicated two days to simply understanding angels. Yesterday, I talked about the nature of angels, and today, I want to talk about what they do. But again, before we dive right into that theme, I want to return to the question of why God needs angels. I mean, why does he give them assignments to accomplish his will? Since God spoke the universe into existence, well, it seems rather obvious that there is no lack of power in God. Do you want biblical evidence for that? Well, let me suggest just four passages of Scripture. First, Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. If it pleases God, he'll do something. He'll accomplish it. Second, Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. That is, there is no domain in which God does not achieve all he wants and to accomplish his will with ease. Whatever pleases God, he does. Third, Isaiah 46, verse 10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So the outcomes between what God proposes and what he accomplishes is never in doubt. God always succeeds. And by the way, that's why when God makes promises to us, they're so precious. You know, unlike human beings who make promises and then we can't accomplish them, it's never like that with God. And then fourth, Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? I say all of these things for two reasons. One is to combat a false teaching known as open theism. See, open theism is the belief that God is not all-powerful and that he succeeds by convincing people to join him in his struggle against evil. And in this view, God is at war and it appears that he's going to win, but in the meantime, war continues until he is able to win. Well, clearly, the Bible doesn't teach that view. The God of the Bible simply speaks and what he says is done. You know, my second reason for quoting these verses is so that you don't feel that God needs angels. Listen, God needs nothing. That's why Paul declared to the Athenians, listen to Acts 17, 24 to 25. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That is to say, not only does God not need human beings to accomplish anything, he needs nothing outside of himself. Even creation itself, both the creation of the unseen realm and the seen realm, is not to satisfy God's loneliness. See, God isn't lonely. God never was lonely. For untold ages before he created the world, the fellowship within the triune God was so complete that he needed nothing outside of himself. Well, then why did God create? And the answer to that is very similar to the question of why an artist who treasures beauty within his or her soul would bother to put that beauty onto a piece of canvas. God created out of his joy of being God. His creation, his joy goes external in the created world. And that brings us back to why God created angels. Well, he doesn't need them. He needs nothing. But within his boundless wisdom, he has created angels and he does use them to accomplish his will. I mean, that's how God has elected in the present hour to accomplish his will. They are the means that God has chosen. So, but what do they do? Well, I don't think I can give you an exhaustive list, but from a wide reading of Scripture, I can at the very least give six concrete functions that angels do play. First, God uses them to patrol the earth. Here we have the beginnings of a warfare foundation. You might consider Zechariah chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked to me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And the answer the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And so we not only see them on duty roaming the earth, but also they report back to their commanders, and I've got to assume eventually to God himself about the state of the earth's affairs. Again, you have to ask, doesn't God know what's already happening? Well, yeah, but he's chosen for this activity of angels. Now, we'll answer the question of why later, but for now, we have to see them going out with an assignment to monitor the earth's activities. Second, we see them carrying out God's judgment on his behalf. And of this activity, we see them fully engaged. And so, if you heard me yesterday, you've already heard me mention 2 Samuel chapter 24, when David sinned against God. And at one time, David then sees an angel, and he's striking down the people, and already 70,000 of them have died. We also mentioned 2 Chronicles 32, verse 21, when God sent a powerful angel who cut off the mighty warriors and commanders and officers of Assyria so that 120,000 of them died in their camp. Or you might think of Acts 12, 23, when, when Herod began to assume that he was a god and an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. Indeed, in the last battle, mentioned in Revelation 16, verse 1, the seven angels pour out onto the earth the seven bowls of God's wrath. 
All of that to say that God may at any moment pour out his anger on the rebellious, and he will choose to accomplish his purposes through the hand of the angels. I assume, therefore, that angels are given the power to create disease and plague, as well as other devastating powers. In this sense, we see angels as God's army. They're not only patrolling the earth, but they can, according to the command of God, at any moment call human beings to account. I need to mention this matter again, even though I've said it before. The image of helpful little angels is often not in keeping with what the Bible describes. Angels are mighty warriors of God, and I have no doubt that the terrors that have at times fallen on the wicked came as angels wreaked the anger of God on the lives of evil men and women and even on evil societies and nations. It gives us an interesting perspective to know that success on the battlefield comes at the permission of God. God can at any moment send his angels to destroy any human army on any battlefield. This is because of his sovereign and wise purposes. I mean, after all, the earth is the Lord's and God will not be taken lightly. Now, please notice from all of this that angels are commanders who are themselves under authority. Angels don't act on their own. Rather, they respond to God. And that's why, for instance, it's sinful for us to engage angels in requesting anything of them. We don't ask angels for anything. They're not authorized to respond to your requests. They are under orders from the throne of heaven, not from the prayers of people. We pray to God, not angels. We are well served to remember Revelation 19, verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. See, all believers must know that, that we are servants of God and that that's what angels are. Seeking the wisdom of angels is wrong. Seeking to honor angels is wrong. Seeking to know the names of angels where you live is ridiculous. Wanting a relationship with your supposed guardian angel leads to unhealthy speculation and often to heresy. Your attention should be focused on God. Yeah, we thank God for Psalm 91 verse 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Yeah, but we thank God, not the angels. Angels merely act on God's command. We never get tired of hearing how listeners are impacted by the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. It's always such an honor when you take the time to let us know the ways you've been encouraged. One Back to the Bible Canada listener recently wrote, I'm grateful for your encouraging and truthful teaching of God's Word. May God continue to richly bless this ministry. Susan, a listener of Laugh Again with Phil Calloway wrote, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. There are so many days in which I need a boost of encouragement and an uplifting perspective on life. I love the way you approach each day with a smile. Thanks for making me laugh. If you'd like to share with us your spiritual journey and how it's been impacted through these ministries, don't hesitate to do so. Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. I ended the last section by quoting Psalm 91, verse 11. 
for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. I've said that angels patrol the earth, constantly monitoring what's happening on the earth. And second, I've said that angels often execute God's judgment on the ungodly. But now third, I am saying that angels often guard the pathway of the righteous. See, it's interesting to me to see angels involved, let's say, with the prophet Elijah. You know, so for instance, as Elijah is fleeing, evil Queen Jezebel, 1 Kings 19 says that in exhaustion he had fallen asleep and that an angel awakened him, having prepared a baked cake and a jar of water, and then the angel said, arise and eat. And then in 2 Kings chapter 1, it was an angel who comes to Elijah again, instructing him to confront the king of Israel for his sins. And then when the king of Israel sent soldiers to arrest Elijah for his activities, it was again an angel who instructed the prophet which commander sent from the king that Elijah could trust. We also have to assume that in 2 Kings chapter 2, when Elijah is taken up into heaven and Elisha, his understudy, sees him go, he cries out, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And we have to assume that the horsemen are God's angels sent to take Elijah, the servant of the Lord, home to glory. Psalm 34 verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And Isaiah 63 verse 9 reminds us that the angel of his presence saved God's people in their affliction. I'm here reminded of a story a dear friend once told me. He had taken a group of high school kids on a missions trip, and they had all gone swimming in the ocean. And suddenly a number of the young people got caught in a riptide. And no matter how they struggled, they were being carried out to sea. And the beach was empty, and so there was no one to help. But suddenly a man appeared and he leapt into the water and he was safely bringing them all to shore and they were exhausted and they were amazed to be alive. And so they turned to thank the stranger, but he was gone. Was he an angel? Well, I think it's likely. God sending his angel to guard his children. And so angels monitor the earth and they often are God's agent to judge the wicked and they do protect the righteous. Is there more? Well, since we're speaking about warfare, let's now state the fourth activity of angels. They engage in conflict with demons. I'm going to say a lot more about that in the next two programs, but for now, let's notice this activity. We've already noticed an interesting feature of angels when we looked at Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, where the angel told Daniel that he would have come to his aid sooner, only he was engaged with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. That would seem to indicate that the kingdom of Persia had a powerful prince, that is, a demon, probably Satan himself here, who inspired that nation into wickedness. There was a conflict then in the heavenly realms in which the angel in question was in conflict with this demon. And then at one point in time, Michael, one of the mightiest commanders of the angels of God, called the archangel, aids this angel in the conflict. Does that sound bizarre to you? Well, it's not. Consider that amazing passage in Jude verse 9, where it says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. There really is so much to consider about that brief verse. I mean, the first is that Michael is contending with the devil or engaged in conflict with him. They're squared off against each other, one representing the authority of heaven and the other the rebel against heaven. 
And we also notice that in this case, the point of contention was over the dead body of Moses. I mean, what in the world did Satan want with the body of Moses? I mean, did he want to desecrate it in some fashion or did he want to use it for some evil purpose so that people would in the future worship Moses? Well, we simply don't know. And all the speculation in the world is not going to get us any closer to the truth. But clearly, Michael responds to God's order so that Satan would not be able to do that which he had determined to do with the body of Moses. Michael was sent to stop Satan. See, I also noticed that in the dispute, Michael never loses sight of the limits of his own authority. He's not a place to judge Satan. That is entirely in God's purview. And when we talk about demons and our response to them, I will make the point that what has become popular in some circles is, you know, from a biblical perspective, well, it's completely out of order. You know what I mean. Christians constantly speaking to Satan. I command you, Satan, to take your hands off of that person. I I command you to go back to hell where you came from. And then, you know, what follows is a string of abusive talk towards the evil one. Well, that kind of talk not only has no biblical foundation, but as we can see from Jude, it's forbidden. Our business is not with demons, it's with God. I know that we can command demons to leave someone who's demon-possessed, but that's it. Let me not get ahead of myself. Clearly, there's so much to talk about, but let's review. Angels keep tabs on the earth. They patrol it. Angels bring God's judgment on the wicked. Angels protect God's people. Angels also confront the world of demons, blocking their evil designs. Now, fifth, angels witness God's dealings with his elect, and they marvel as they witness God's grace among his chosen people. So let's start by noticing Hebrews chapter 2. See, the chapter begins by announcing that the giving of the law was given through the mediation of angels, but then the passage moves to the greatness of the new covenant in the blood of Christ that is so much greater to that which was in the past. And then comes the telling verse. It's verse 5. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. That is, the glory of our salvation and the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. That story of the redemption of humanity. Well, that's not the story of angels. The greatness of our redemption is not a benefit given to angels. Let's take it one step further. 1 Peter 1 verse 12, speaking about the glories of our salvation, says that these are the things into which angels long to look. Listen, Christ didn't die for the angels. For those angels that fell from grace, there is no plan of salvation. There's a burning pit reserved for all the angels who follow Satan into rebellion. For them, there is no road back. And furthermore, all of the angels who are loyal to God, every one of them is without sin. They've not fallen as we have. But that all means that none of them know the grand story of a Savior who was given. None of them know the redemption of the shed blood of the one who suffered and died for them. And yet, according to 1 Peter, angels are overwhelmed with this, and they want to know more. We assume, therefore, that angels are amazed at the privilege that has been given to all of the redeemed, that we should know the grace of God in a way that they never will. Consider Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, and there Paul says, To me, 
Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, watch this, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, the rulers and authorities certainly include both the host of demons and angels. I have to assume then, whenever anyone is baptized, there is an explosion of rapturous applause and praise to God among the angels and a great breathing out of anger among the demons. Listen to the words of Luke 15, verse 10. Jesus says, just so, I tell you, there is great joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I have one more thing to say about the activity of angels, and this last sixth item, well, it's the most important function they play. Angels worship God. Psalm 103, verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Isaiah 6, 2 and 3 speaks of the angels that attend the throne, that they are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Revelation 4, verse 8 speaks of four living creatures, unique among the rank of the angels, who never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when these angels speak this way, all of heaven is led into a rapture of worship to the one who sits on the throne. And it is this activity that tells us why God uses angels. Remember, we began by saying that God doesn't need the angels at all. He is altogether satisfied in the all-sufficient God. But he's created angels and given them assignments that reflect his glory. And it is their delight to be permitted to serve the altogether lovely God. And of all the things they do, they find no greater delight than in falling down before the one who has made them and rejoicing in his beauty. John, this is fantastic, but I got to tell you, I think there's a lot of cynics out there who would say, you know, are angels really patrolling the earth? Is there really such a thing? Yeah, you know, we, you know, last uh, yesterday we talked about, you know, that there are so many non-Christians that are fascinated with the idea of angels, and yet, you know, you think about it, the Christian church, I mean, often we don't talk about them, and yet they come up more often in the Bible than we had ever imagined, and and then, you know, we hear about people who have actually had encounters with them. I think part of our problem is, you know, we're trying to run so hard away from, you know, what we hear in the non-Christian world about angels so that we don't mention them at all. And that's a mistake, I think. Thanks, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our series, The Invisible War, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Everyone has a story. We all come from a beginning and an end. And while it may go largely unnoticed by the world around us, God knows our story and he invites us to unite our story with his. The story of Jesus is not simply something we read. It's a drama which invites preparation and participation. We participate by faith and obedience. So thank you for your prayers and financial support that you offer this ministry. 
Back to the Bible Canada is committed to telling the whole story of God with consistent, clear teaching of the Bible. Your support ensures the truths of God's Word are taught daily. We ask you to consider a gift to support Bible teaching this month, perhaps for the first time, or by becoming a monthly partner. To give a gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.